I'd like you to take your Bibles and meet me there where we just had scripture reading in Matthew chapter 21. The title of my message this morning is Welcome Betrayed Crucified. You know, I asked you to pray this past week for a conversation that I had with a young man who has a differing of opinion on what it means to have eternal life. It's so important to realize that everything we're going to cover this morning is a part of who Jesus Christ is. He is the best teacher in all the world. We can learn so much from how he dealt with situations. In the conversation that I had on Tuesday, there was a lot of accusations. There was a lot of, well, what about this? And have you considered that? And it reminds me of how the Pharisees tried to trap Jesus. We're going to read nine verses here, and then I'm going to talk to you about some things that happened to Jesus after he made his triumphant entry. He was welcomed. It was a thunderous applause. It was a great multitude of people that were welcoming him in. I don't know if you're familiar with uh, full stadiums, but if you've ever been in a full stadium or just been listening to one on TV and you hear something great happen, that place lights up. Some of the most thunderous applauses I've ever heard are on soccer pitches, and I am not a soccer fan at all. I'm for the good old American football, you know what I'm saying? But soccer around the world gets people excited. People get really excited. The closest I've been to actually experiencing something that cool was going to a Rays baseball game one day when it was packed out. And the sad thing was we were playing the Giants, and they won 5-1, to one, but there were so many Giants fans that when the Giants fans were hitting their runs, that place was lighting up, and it really shakes you. I had a great day on Friday watching Rays. Anybody a baseball fan in here? Okay, good. We've got some common sense floating around here. That's good. Good, good. Yeah, it's very good. <laughs> but uh, I enjoy baseball. I love the sport. And, I, and I've, I've been a part of some of those radio calls when Tampa's in the playoffs, and it's just the stadium just lights up. It's exciting. And what we see here with Jesus' triumphant entry is it's actually a change in how he was approaching ministry before. You know, before, yes, he was public. He was teaching, and he was preaching, and he was correcting. He was challenging. He was exposing I mean, the man knew the Word of God because he is the Word of God, made flesh and dwelt among us. And people were beginning to realize this. They were saying things like they marveled at him because he spoke as one with authority. Isn't that amazing? That there were people who were at one time alive and got to hear Jesus speak his own word. And this was making an impact on people. And it was causing no small stir for the religious leaders because the religious leaders had departed from the truth and had partaken in something called self-righteousness. That gets back to the phone call I had on Tuesday. It was about an hour long, and I made sure to just set it up for an hour. Because if you've ever dealt with somebody um, like the person that I was dealing with, the conversation can go on for hours. <laughs> I will not soon forget Matthew and Blake uh, one time calling me and saying, we just had a conversation for six hours with a Catholic that wanted to convince us that we were wrong. And both of them have said, I probably would not do that again. And it's not really a, a knock on their unwillingness, but there are just sometimes, folks, where people are deceived. People are deceived, and they're deceived very easily. Let me just tell you this before I go into the conversation I had with this young man on Tuesday. Um, I recently just got back on Facebook just to check things out and see what's going on in the, the world of social media. And a page was brought to me out of New Zealand. And it is a small ministry. From what I see, they understand eternal life is by simply putting your faith in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ for the full payment of your sins. And what their goal was to expose Bethel Church. Now, if you're familiar with Bethel, it's a huge movement a huge musical worship movement. Many of the songs that you may know and, and love today are built off of Bethel Ministries. I never, ever once saw or listened to a sermon from Bethel. I'll be honest with you, I didn't have a desire. 
I have a lot of other things to do. I didn't take time to look at it. Well, yesterday I was looking at some of the things that are coming out of this church. I am so thankful that for 50 years this church has been here. Because when I hear what is going on in the world, I am overcome with grief because I think to myself, how in the world is someone going to pull out of this? It's strong. And it's all based on omens. I had a I had a video come up when I was watching it yesterday of a man who stood up and said, an owl came to me in a vision and spoke the word of the Lord. And the people are, they're clapping, they're, they're applauding. Yes, God's prophecy is coming out. Yes, this is, this is how we can know what we're going to go and, and do in the future. I saw 50-second clips. One of a woman who said, Someone came and gave her a donation of a, of a, a, a hand-painting, a hand-painted image of a diamond, and it was shining in all different directions. And she says, I kid you not, she says, this reminds me of the time when in a, in a, a fever dream, I saw Jesus and he came to me and proposed to me and said, would you be my wife? Thousands of likes. Tens of thousands of shares. If you and I think that the ministry that is here at Calvary is like anywhere else, we're wrong. More and more people are moving away from the Word. And they're, right now, we're in an age of imagination. What can my mind conjure up? I'm sure you saw a little while ago the preacher that spit on his hand and then rubbed it on the face of one of his members. Right? He called the guy up right out of the audience. Now, if I ever do that, you call 911. <laughs> Something's going on. <laughs> but this is what happens when, when the world moves away from, or excuse me, when the church moves away from the Word of God. It breaks my heart. It breaks my heart because the delusion is so strong. And I often think to myself in those times where, I'll be honest, it seems hopeless for people. It seems hopeless. I think about what Jesus did. In his entire ministry, he knew the very hearts and the very thoughts of the ones that he was speaking to. And he was still faithful to give the message. And now we see this change in his ministry where before when he preached and taught and when he was challenging the religious leaders, he would withdraw himself. He would vanish or disappear and they were never able to catch him. But now as he enters into Jerusalem, he comes into a thunderous applause. The gentleman I had the discussion with on the phone, our, our conversation quickly turned to be antagonistic. I kind of felt like a boxer that was just bobbing and weaving and looking for a chance to put one on him. You know what I'm saying? But it was just one thing after another. And I'll be honest, after a certain amount of time, you're tired of that. You're saying, all right, that's fine. You want to believe that way. Let me at least give you this invitation. And towards the end of the phone call, as we were wrapping things up, I said to him, I don't know who you are. I have no idea what you look like. I only know what you sound like and the videos that you make on YouTube about me. That's fine. So, but I want you to understand that there is freedom in Christ. Not freedom to sin, but freedom to love and serve Him out of a pure heart. How do we do that? You can only do that if you know for certain that your sins are paid. You see, what he was looking for was himself to finish the process. If you imagine he, uh, Jesus merely showed him where the ignition is and he had to put the key in and he had to turn it and he had to continue or else his faith was never really genuine. And we talked back and forth about that. But at the end of the phone call, there were two very separate positions that were laid out. I honestly and with all sincerity invited him to rest his faith in Jesus Christ. When it talks about in Hebrews 3 that we can have our rest now, this is having assurance that no matter what happens, 
from this point until the end of our lives. We have salvation secured. It's locked up. And I made that invitation to him. And I told him, I I don't want to simply be right and you be wrong. I want us both to be saved. The response that I got was mockery. I appreciate your genuine, heartfelt, evangelistic call. Missing the point. I want you to pray for that young man. Pray for him. Because I doubt I'm not the only person that has planted some type of seed in his mind. When we talked about the two natures, he had no idea what I was talking about. Now that makes a lot of sense. Because if he thinks he is bettering himself, then of course you need to work for your salvation. If it's a continual process of you getting to the place where you can be called saved. But the Bible teaches that when you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you are, what does Jesus say to Nicodemus? You're born again. And this is how 1 John chapter 3 and verse 9 can make sense. He who is born of God does not commit, not, con, not practice, but continue, or, or, or continue, but commit one single act of sin. That's because we have the new nature born within us. And at the end of the call, he simply said, I'm going to continue to do the things that are right to earn my eternal life. And you are a deceived man. Now, I let that hang there for a second. And I think in the weight of that phone call, it caused him to recognize that he didn't make any kind of attempt on my soul. He started to backtrack and compliment about how I was a good man and how he appreciates that I called him. But there was a moment there where I think it really came out. There was no desire for me to be saved. There was just a desire for me to be exposed as wrong. Look, all the false teachers out there with Bethel Church and all all these major ministries, we want those individuals to be saved. But the doctrine, the teaching, can be marked rightly as a heresy. And as it says in Romans, we are to mark and avoid it. So when we look at the life of Jesus and his triumphant entry, there are so many things that happen in that six-day period after the triumphant entry that define who he is. Let's look in Matthew chapter 21. Meet me there in verse 1. And when they drew nigh unto Jerusalem and were come to Bethpage unto the Mount of Olives, they sent Jesus to disciples, saying unto them, Go into the village over against you, and straightway ye shall find an ass tied and a colt with her. Loose them, bring them unto me. And if any man say aught unto you, ye shall say, The Lord hath need of them, and straightway he will send them. All this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet, saying, Tell ye the daughter of Zion, Behold, thy king cometh upon thee, or unto thee, meek and sitting upon an ass, and a colt, the foal of an ass. Now, this is interesting. Everywhere that Jesus had been before this was on foot. He traveled around just like anyone would travel around at that time, on his two feet. I think it's interesting that you have heard some televangelists saying, do you think that Jesus would have traveled uh, economy? That's why I need a private jet. I wish I was making that up. You can go find that quote. I don't remember who said it, but they said it and the whole world went, whoa! (laughs) This is actually the first time that Jesus comes in riding on an animal, which is again a sign of royalty. David, Solomon, they did the same thing. He's, it, he is announcing it now. The offer is there. He knows, however, unlike the people, that he is going to die. That he is a sacrifice for the sins of all the world. It's also an order of how you and I need to settle things. We don't need to get right culturally first or right between our fellow man first. We need to get right spiritually first. This is why after David committed his sin, in which he laid with Bathsheba, got Bathsheba's husband Uriah to come home, got him drunk to sleep with his wife so that the baby that was David's would be blamed on Uriah. And after he said no to that, he sent him back with a letter 
to the front lines in which he was commanded, Uriah, do not open this. And it was a very death sentence in which he handed to his general. Uriah was then put out on the front lines and killed. And David thought his sin was covered. The knock on the door later is Nathan. Nathan gives a situation which David could only say, well, that man should be put to death. And Nathan, as a prophet of the Lord, said, thou art the man. And all your sin will be known. David then later writes in in Psalms, against thee and thee only have I sinned. It is exactly, exactly how we should look at our sin as well. We've sinned against God and against Him alone. And Jesus coming in to Jerusalem is to, yes, make the offer for the kingdom. But the people are missing that He has to die because they're not right with Him spiritually. Isn't it wonderful to know that you can sit here this morning and have a complete assurance in your relationship with God? That it exists? That you are forever His child? Jesus Christ has made that possible. So the quote here in verse 5 is directly from Zechariah 9.9. And if you would like to look up on the screens here, I'll show that to you now. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, thy king cometh unto thee. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding upon an ass, and upon a colt, the foal of an ass. And Jesus fulfilled that prophecy earlier. Gary, who's an elder at the church here, said in a response to a question, why do you believe the Bible is true? And he gave an excellent answer. Because of fulfilled prophecy. This is fulfillment of prophecy, that he would come in just this way. And I want you to note one of the words that is used here, having salvation. The people were certainly looking for deliverance. And you will see that in the very words that they use, in the very scriptures that they quote from. But let's continue in verse 6. And the disciples went and did as Jesus commanded them, and brought the ass and the colt, and put on them their clothes, and they set him thereon. And a very great multitude spread their garments in the way, Others cut down branches from the trees and strawed them in the way. They are preparing the entrance of this great prophet, Jesus. They know who he is. He has healed their sick. He has restored sight to the blind. And for the first time, he begins to teach the very things they've heard for years in the law, but he teaches them with authority. Great multitudes followed after him. He had support. He had what you would call the popular vote. (laughs) There was no question that this was someone special. The disciples believed, except for Judas. They followed. In fact, when Jesus says, I'm going to be killed and come back, what does Peter say? I'm not going to let that happen. What does that reveal? That reveals that Peter was missing the offering. As John said, Behold, the Lamb of God, which what? Taketh away the sins of the world. He could only do that by taking our sins, laying it upon Him, and dying justly for it. The wrath of God was laid on Him. So we're we're reaching a point here, we're reaching a climax, a boiling point, where you see where everybody is in line. Everybody is saying exactly what they say in verse 9. And the multitudes that went before and that followed cried, saying, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he was coming to Jerusalem, all the city was moved. They're moved. This is a disturbance. This is an event. It's marked. It's known. Saying, who is this? And the multitude said, 
This is Jesus, the prophet of Nazareth of Galilee. So the triumphant entry here marks when Jesus fulfills the prophecy in Zechariah 9.9. I want to show you what this word Hosanna means. It's translated to save us now. I'm going to read you a quote from Psalms 118, verses 24 through 26. This is the day which the Lord hath made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. Save now, I beseech thee. O Lord, O Lord, I beseech thee, send now prosperity. Blessed be he that cometh in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you out of the throne, excuse me, out of the house of the Lord. I want you to note the multitude's acceptance of Jesus coming in. If we had three hours, I would gladly read to you how Jesus' authority was questioned. Matthew, in the perfect way that he relates these events, does it in groups of threes. You have three teachings from Jesus, three questions of Jesus' authorities, and three answers to the antagonistic Pharisees and rulers. But since we don't have that time, I'll paint the picture for you. He walks in. He goes in to cleanse the temple of the thieves that were there. Boy, isn't that a, you know what? Isn't that a description of church today? People are coming in there selling things that are dead. They do not meet the requirements, but they're selling it as this is good. Pastors and teachers get in pulpits this morning all across America and offer things that are dead as living. More and more, our services are replaced by music and worship and emotion, and the teaching is 10 or 15 minutes long, and it's got nothing. Have you ever had cotton candy? Do you remember cotton candy as a kid? I'm going to tell you this story. Right down here off of Webb Road, as a kid, I went to that carnival there every year that it was there. Y'all know what I'm talking about, those who are local? As a kid, that was like second to Bush Gardens. That thing was amazing. It had all the rickety rides. It had all of the smells of the carnival. You could get a goldfish that I remember getting one year. And on the very, on, I was walking down Jackson Springs Road, and my fish was absent from his body and present with the Lord. I didn't even get a chance to get a tank. That thing was dead. <laughs> I got home, and I looked, and it was belly up. It was done. But I remember eating cotton candy there. And I looked at it, and it, it, you, you know how big it is? It's so big. It's huge. You, that you see him spin it. It's awesome. It's so big, you're like, I'm going to be full. There's going to be no way that I'll eat until, I won't eat till Wednesday after this. And as soon as you take a bite into it, what happens? It is gone. It literally evaporates. If you were to stand in front of a mirror and eat some cotton candy, and then look in your mouth, there's just color. There's nothing there. Boy, sometimes I feel like that's a lot of preaching. It, wow. Look, this looks good. Bite into it. It evaporates into nothing. When Jesus was walking into the temple, and he had righteous anger, it was because those in the place of leadership were abusing the ones who were following them. And yeah, he flipped some tables. Now that's not, hey, it's not an excuse for you to go find a table and flip it when you're upset, okay? My pastor said, no, I did not. But this is definitely a demonstration of righteous anger, as it should be against those who know better. James chapter 3 says, not many of you should be teachers, for you'll be held to a higher standard. And as he walks in and he begins to cleanse, all of a sudden, here comes the group that is against him. All the religious leaders, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes, the elders. They're coming in, dressed to the nines. They are ready to say, how about this? Gotcha! Jesus didn't know. 
No, he knew. And he gave some answers that made that. You, you see it in the scripture where they said, if we answer one way, it'll mean this. If we answer another, it'll mean that. Both ways were wrong. And he's right. Sad. We laugh because you and I can see through the lens of the scripture their error. But that multitude, they were deceived very quickly, actually, within the matter of a week. Now I want you to take your Bible and go to Matthew chapter 26. Matthew chapter 26, look there in verse 47. Jesus has just gotten done praying as we covered this time last year. And He had great stress upon Him for what He was about to become. And He asked if the cup could be removed from Him. Not because He was unwilling, but because He recognized the magnitude of what was about to take place upon Him. Each time He said, not my will, but Thine. And He looks at the disciples, and the disciples are there with Him, but only physically. They've checked out. They're sleeping. And Jesus' stress gets further And he again cries out, knowing that Judas right now in this very moment is going to betray him for 30 pieces of silver. And he prays again, and he is then given the strength that he needed. And he goes out to this event in verse 47. And while he yet spake, lo, Judas, one of the twelve, came and with him a great multitude with swords and staves from the chief priests and elders of the people. Guys, this is from the highest position of Jewish power. They are coming with all the authority that they can to take him away. Has Jesus demonstrated any kind of behavior in which one would need swords and staves? Why did they not do this in the daytime? Why did they do this at night? You only arrest who you perceive to be a criminal at night. They are coming with great power, great authority to take him away. And Judas was the one who betrayed him. They wouldn't have known where he was, was it not for one of his own. By the way, and we talked about this two weeks ago, people can be followers of Jesus and not be saved. Judas is a prime example of that. Now he that betrayed him, verse 48, gave them a sign, saying, Whomsoever I shall kiss, that same is he. Hold him fast, bind him. And forthwith he came to Jesus and said, Hail, Master, and kissed him. And Jesus said unto him, Friend, wherefore art thou come? Now this is not Jesus going, what? I think this is twofold. Number one, that use of the word friend, you know what Jesus says about friends. They lay down their lives. And he looks at Judas, the one who's walked with him and held the money for all of his public ministry, and he says, friend. You know, Judas was not exempt from the sacrifice on Calvary. Judas's sin was not somehow put off to the side as one too great to pay. In this very moment, Jesus is looking at the man in whom he will pay for his sin too. Isn't that amazing? The Catholic Church teaches that if a person were to take their own lives then that is a sin which is unforgivable. And they point to Judas, who later went and hung himself after this. His bowels out. This is a horrible picture. However, it's not a proof text that that kind of sin cannot be paid. Jesus died for all the sins of all the world. If there was one that he did not die for, then he didn't die for all the sin of all the world. But in this very moment, in the dead of night, 
after the Lord's, or after the Last Supper, after this great stressful moment, after the pleas, after Jesus, his own disciples, no longer able to hang with him in the same way that he's asked. He is ready. He is prepared. As he said several chapters ago, mine hour is come. It is time. Hosanna, save us now. Prosperity, salvation from Roman oppression. No. I'm going to die for something greater than your Roman oppression. I'm going to pay for your sin. Friend, where art thou come? Jesus knows. Judas knows that Jesus is aware. Then came they and laid hands on Jesus and took him. And behold, one of them which were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck a servant of the high priest and smote off his ear. He cut it off. Then said Jesus unto him, Put up again thy sword into his place. For all they that take the sword shall perish with the sword. Thinkest thou that I cannot now pray to my Father, and he shall presently give me more than twelve legions of angels? Ooh, ooh, ooh. We live in a state where you can conceal carry, where you have the right to defend yourself, to bear arms. And this, this, this one that cut off the ear of one of the servants of the high priest, Jesus said to sheath the sword, because he knows the one who can call legions of angels at just a command. This is not the words of a guilty man. These are not the words of a man who is scared or frightened. He is ready to offer himself as that sacrifice. Did he do anything wrong? No. Unjustly was he brought before these men. But now, excuse me, verse 54, but how then shall the Scriptures be fulfilled that it must be in the in that same hour said jesus unto the multitudes are ye come out as against a thief with swords and staves for to take me i sat daily with you teaching in the temple and you laid no hold on me boy jesus is smart as a whip y'all and i want you to pay attention to what he's saying here i was just in the temple i was just teaching you didn't lay hold on me there why there's a theme there's a theme The theme is, these rulers and these chief priests and these Pharisees were certainly 100% scared of that multitude. They thought to stone him in other places, but didn't because of the fear of the multitude. In fact, in John chapter 8, when Jesus boldly declares, I am, then they pick up the stones to, to kill him. But now their hostility has finally reached an execution point. They're ready to move forward. Yeah, they know he was in the temple. But now's the time. Because now that multitude, it's, they're not here. Isn't it interesting to see the ones who are trying to arrest this thief are the ones who behave in thiefish behavior? But it says there in verse 56, but this was done that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples forsook him and fled. This is not on on the screen here, but it's in Zechariah 13 in verse 7. Listen to these words. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd and against the man that is my fellow, saith the Lord of hosts. Smite the shepherd and the sheep shall be scattered. And I will turn mine hand upon the little ones. Now the very last people who were followers of Jesus dispersed. Peter is challenged, though the scripture says, by a little girl. Aren't you the one with Jesus? And just as Jesus said that he would, Peter denied him three times. And when that cock crew, Peter had known what he had done. But now, Jesus is going to be all by himself. A false trial takes place. 
Take your Bibles and go to chapter 27 of Matthew. While you're turning there, I want to read this to you. When Jesus is going back and forth, or excuse me, when the rulers and leaders are going back and forth amongst themselves to bring up false witness after false witness after false witness, they keep asking him, tell us plainly, are you the Christ? Do not mince words. Say it. Are you? And Jesus responds in in verse 64 of uh, chapter 26, Thou hast said, Nevertheless, I say unto you hereafter, shall you see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. And the high priest understood that. Some people like to say that Jesus never plainly said that he was. If that was the case, then what happens next would not be possible. Then the high priest rent his clothes, saying, He hath spoken blasphemy. What further need have we of witnesses? Behold now, ye have heard this blasphemy. What think ye? They answered and said, He is guilty of death. And then they spit in his face, and they pulled his beard, and they said, saying, Prophesy unto us, Thou Christ, who is he that smote thee? This is what Jesus was willing to do for me and for you. This is why when the modern church today decides to water down and replace with straight poison biblical teaching, that it's a shame upon what Christ did. We're not prophets. We're not storytellers. I don't come here today with an omen. I come here with a message. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. And I want you to see how his trial was fake. It was fabricated. It was false. He said he's going to destroy the temple in, 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 in three days. Well, let's crucify him. They go all through this. The Sanhedrin delivers Jesus to Pilate there in, in Matthew 27. And even Pilate, who if you do a study on this guy, he hated the Jews. He's not a Jewish fan. He was bothered by them He was not interested in their customs and in their desires. And here they come with Jesus. Kill him, kill him, kill him, oh, kill him. Because they need that permission in order to do it. This is why when he died on a cross, it was a Roman form of punishment. So they're scrambling. We got to get this done, and we got to get it done quickly. And we got to get we got to find a way to get the multitude against him. Well, they had already been planting their seeds of doubt. Little here, little there, that altercation there in the, in the temple, a lot of people were present for that. But as Jesus is brought before Pilate, you have this phrase here. Look in verse 15 of chapter uh, 27 in Matthew. Now, at that feast, the governor was wont to release unto the people a prisoner, whom they would. And they had then a notable prisoner called Barabbas. Therefore, when they that were gathered together, Pilate said unto them, Whom will ye that I release unto you, Barabbas or Jesus, which is called Christ? For he knew the man who was, he's a Gentile, he's not even a part of the Jewish faith, he does not like the Jews, he even knew that this man Jesus was brought before him out of envy from the Sanhedrin. Are you here with me today? I want you to understand me plainly. That one of the most lethal acts other people that commit those types of things that happen to us, and we get lifted up in pride, and we, we ascend ourselves to this point of self-righteousness. When even when you look at Pilate, he was able to recognize. They have him here just because they are envious of him. Verse 19. When he was set down on the judgment seat, his wife sent unto him, saying, Now this is interesting. (laughs) Have thou nothing to do with that, what's it say, folks? Just man. For I have suffered many things this day in a dream because of him. So here's Pilate. Sanhedrin comes. I want Jesus dead. He obliges, but he offers 
an exchange. It's either Barabbas, the convicted criminal, or Jesus, the very man in whom he knows there he's only there for envy. And now his wife comes to him and says, I have suffered many things this day because of a dream I had of him. Do not do anything to this just man. There are things that I don't understand. It's one of these moments where the sovereignty of God is working throughout this entire process. He will die. This will come to pass. But God is using even those that despise him to accomplish his will. You see that? Isn't that amazing? All these things went exactly how the Lord knew they were going to go. Before the foundation of the world, Jesus was the lamb slain. This event had to come to pass. Pilate didn't change his mind. He didn't say, as he would have been correct in saying, this man is not guilty. He went forward with it. And thereby the whole redemption of humanity continued to move forward. Isn't that amazing? It blows my mind. Verse 20, but the chief priests and elders persuaded the multitude that they should ask Barabbas and destroy Jesus. There it is. The ones who brought Jesus falsely to Pilate then converted the multitude to where they screamed out, crucify him, crucify him. And the Roman authorities with the Jewish Leadership said, no problem. And they went forward with that. Skip down to verse, or look at these next two verses up to 23. The governor answered and said unto them, Whether of the twain will ye that I release unto you? They said, Barabbas. Pilate saith unto them, What shall I do with Jesus which is called Christ? Wow. Of course, this is his title, Jesus, which is called your Messiah. They all say unto him, let him be crucified. And the governor said, why, what evil hath he done? But they cried out the more, saying, let him be crucified. We've seen since 2020, with all the protests and the riots and all these different things that are going on in the world, that there seems to be this false belief that the louder you shout, the more correct you are to do what you're doing. And when Pilate asked an honest question, what evil hath he done? What did the multitude do? The very ones who just said a week ago, Hosanna, save us now, son of David, were now saying as a rage, crucify him, crucify him. Don't want to hear that. Crucify him. And they did so. Look in verse 32. And as they came out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name, him they compelled to bear his own cross. And when they were come unto a place called Golgotha, that is to say, a place of the skull, they gave him vinegar to drink, mingled with gall, and when he had tasted thereof, he would not drink. And they crucified him and parted his garments, casting lots, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophet they parted my garments among them, and upon my vesture did they cast lots. And sitting down, they watched him there, and set up over his head his accusation written, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Then were there, uh, then were there two thieves crucified with him, one on the left hand and another on the excuse me, one on the right hand and another on the left. And they that passed by reviled him, wagging their heads and saying, Thou that destroyeth the temple and buildest it in three days, save thyself. If thou be the Son of God, come down from the cross. Likewise also the chief priests, mocking him with the scribes and elders, said, He saved others. Himself he cannot save. If he be the King of Israel, let him now come down from the cross Folks, you paying attention to this next line? And we will believe him. I am amazed by this, this line. 
I want you to think about something for a moment. There are people that are dying today that will spend an eternity in hell. Right now, thousands of people will die today. We're here. We get to do one of these. Lord willing, we're going to go have something to eat after this. We're going to go to our homes. We're going to sit down in our furniture. We're going to turn on the AC. We're going to relax. And there are people that are planning to do the same thing, and they're going to die. And they will slip into hell, eternally separated from God. Maybe they just came back from church. Maybe they taught the message. Maybe they prayed this morning. Maybe they gave tithes and offerings. Maybe this past weekend they volunteered and helped somebody who was sick and in need. But they die and go to hell. Why? That is so unjust. No, it's not. Because the wages of sin is death. And to see these teachers have such confidence and assurance that they would say something like this is mind-boggling. I want to implore you today, if you have yet to put your faith in Jesus Christ, do it right now. Don't wait. Do not wait. Because you may become so deceived like this. In 2 Thessalonians in chapter 2, we know that there's going to be strong delusion that is sent upon the entire world. We have a second, so let's go there. Look in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. All the T books in the New Testament are alphabetical. If you look in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, meet me there in verse 10, page 1272. And with all deceivableness of unrighteousness in them that perish, because they received not the love of the truth. Ladies and gentlemen, the love of the truth is the gospel. When a person opens their mouth and preaches the gospel, they are preaching the truth. On Wednesday night, we had a prayer request for some people that rejected the gospel. And we should pray for them. Because in the end times, verse 11, and for this cause, for what cause they rejected the gospel, God shall send them strong delusion that they should believe a lie. That they all might be damned who believe not the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. This is not a slap on God. This is God giving the people who reject the gospel exactly what they want. You've heard the phrase, sin lasts only for a season. Be careful, that season's not your whole, your whole life. The pleasure of sin. It's amazing to see how deceived man can put himself to the point where they can see exactly what is in front of them, yet miss it. I don't want that to be you. The young man I had the conversation with on Tuesday, I don't want that to be him. But right now, he's there. 12, verse 12, that they might be damned who believed not the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Back to Matthew chapter 27, right there where we left off in verse 43. The elders and chief priests and rulers mocking him, saying, if you just come down from the cross, we'll believe him. He trusted in God. Let him deliver him now, if he will have him. For he said, I am the Son of God. There's another positive confirmation that they understood Jesus' claims to be the Messiah. Verse 45 now from the sixth hour, 
there was darkness over all the land unto the ninth hour. Jesus cried in a loud voice, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? I want you to also picture this. This separation that occurs on the cross makes me so sensitive to my sin. I know that all my sin has been paid fully by Jesus, and I still struggle with sin. We all do. But I'll be honest with you, it becomes a little easier when I'm reminded. It becomes a little easier to avoid that sin. When I see what he went through for me. We're not talking about someone who came in and had a motivational conference for three days. We're not talking about someone who's selling us a book or a method. We're talking about someone who stepped in my place. And did what I could never do for myself. This is why next weekend is more than just two hours at church. He did not remain in that grave. He came back. And we got dressed this morning and we had fellowship with one another and we pray for each other because of this right here. And sometimes it's so easy for us to forsake this. I don't have time today. I'm, I'm tired or whatever it may be. How could we do that? Some of them that stood there, verse 47, when they heard that, said, This man calleth for Elias. And straightway one of them ran and took a sponge and filled it with vinegar and put it on a reed and gave him to drink. The rest said, let, be, let us see whether Elias will come to save him. Jesus, when he had cried again with a loud voice, yielded up the ghost. He was not killed on that cross. He gave up the ghost. In other portions of Scripture, as Gary did a great job this morning, combining uh, all of the Gospel accounts of a different event, we know that he cried out, It is finished. What was finished? That payment for all the sin of all the world. And verse four, uh, 51 is it's just amazing. And behold, the veil of the temple was rent in twain from the top to the bottom, and the rocks, excuse me, and the earth did quake, and the rocks rent. In other places of Scripture, we see the phrase, the rocks would cry out if they could. You, you see the weight here, the author of creation, the one who molded our physical form, the one who designed how we function and operate, the one who created the seasons and the most beautiful place on earth that you could ever travel was a product of his design and creation. Now the earth is responding and the, the very fabrics of the temple that is separating the, the common area from the Holy of Holies, it is responding and separating because now there is nothing between God and man. That bridge has been gapped. He is now a minister of reconciliation, removing that which was in the way. And now you and I and those who died before and put their faith in the coming Messiah can now have oneness with God, fellowship with Him. And yes, we shed tears because of what happened to Jesus. But folks, thank God it happened. Amazing. Verse 54. Look at this. 
54 is another wonderful, it's amazing to see how other people saw it before his own people saw it. Now when the centurion and they that were with him watching Jesus saw the earthquake and those things that were done, they feared greatly saying, truly, this is the Son of God. A centurion is not a Jewish soldier. This is a Roman guard. The Roman guard who answers to Pilate, who hates the Jews, was able to see this is the Son of God. (laughs) And then he was entombed. And they rolled that big old stone right over the entryway. And they sealed it. And I'm not talking about, here, sign here for your package. (laughs) They made sure that was tight and secure. And they put a Roman guard there. And we'll look at that next week. But, as the hymn says, up from the grave he arose. Amen? Because he did. Would you close your Bibles? In the beginning of the message, I I talked to you about that Facebook page that I saw and and just how how sad it is. How sad it is to see the, the state of our world today when it comes to Christianity. I I believe in end times prophecy. So I think that we are very close to the time in which this world will begin to experience supernatural things. I've said this before. I think a lot of the stuff going on in the film industry with superheroes and uh, things coming out of space and all this different stuff, uh, you know, they're fun stories and all that, but I really think it's conditioning people for the events in Revelation. And we're going to look at that this summer, Lord willing. Some of the things that are described in Revelation, I mean, we could only say right now, this is something that happens in movies. But it's going to happen And for the first time, people are now going to be, I think the people that are maybe atheistic, they're agnostic, we can't know God, they're going to start to see that these things exist. And there's going to be a man that rises up and he's going to have all the answers and he's going to have a man next to him that's going to perform miracles. And people are going to be healed. The world is going to be united, but there's going to be plagues and pestilence and at one point, a third of the population is going to be gone. They look to the leader, and they look to the leader, and that man is the Antichrist. And then, as it says in Revelation 13, he's going to suffer a deadly wound. I think he will die. And then he's going to come back under possession of the devil, and people will say, how how can we not? And he will go into that temple, which will be built, and he will offer the, uh, he, he will desecrate the temple, and then it will be over for the Jewish people. Jesus says, woe unto the woman that has to nurse in that time, or if your flea is in the winter. They'll run. They'll seek shelter. The mark of the beast will be instituted, and people cannot live, buy or sell, without that mark. And all these things are going to come to the last event when Jesus will come back with all of his saints, and there will be this great battle, the Armageddon battle, where the world, even seeing him in his glory, will still make war with him. And he will destroy them. The blood will rise as high as the bridle on a horse's horse's mouth. Jesus will set up his kingdom here. And even in that thousand-year reign, there will be people still, towards the end, that can be deceived by the devil to have another uprising against him. He will squash that. The great white throne judgment will take place, which this is the only period of time where people are currently residing in the, in the heart of the earth will be brought up out of that torment, placed before God to give an account. And will all fall short. The devil will be cast into hell, the Antichrist with him, and all those who believe not on Jesus Christ for eternal life. The Bible says that the smoke of their uh, uh, torment will ascend forever. You and I, though, will have the need of our mind to be cleansed. We'll remember these things no more. And we will walk with Him and we will talk with Him for all of eternity. 
There will be a new heaven and a new earth. This one's going to be gone. And I don't think the next one's going to be Mars. You heard me? Okay? He's going to make a new one. That's a small recap of a long period of time. Every closing of the service here at Calvary, I give the gospel because I believe there may just be somebody out there that has yet to understand it. I got an email from a gentleman in China this weekend. In China, this was amazing. Said he found little old Bible line on YouTube. Little 350 subscriber Bible line. He said for the first time, He's recognizing the error of Reformed theology. He wants to know about dispensationalism. He wants to know about what denomination we are, and I can't wait to tell him, Bible, baby, you know? That's our denomination. It just reminds me every day that people are still seeking. There's still an opportunity for one person to put their faith in Jesus. And all the details that we went over today about his welcome, his betrayal, and his crucifixion, they're all vital. If you're here today and you're depending on something that you did a long time ago, maybe you prayed a prayer. Maybe you, and many of you might have done this because we're in a primarily Baptist way of of preaching around here, or, or Catholic preaching. Maybe you went through a series of classes and you were confirmed by a priest. Or maybe you were told you need to ask Jesus into your heart. And that is what you are trusting in to save you. Friend, you're not saved. The threat of hell lingers over you. And it's my desire that you come to a full understanding of your salvation. This hand, if we're to let it represent you and me, I'm going to let this wallet here represent sin. I'll put it on top of my hand because the Bible says, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We all have sin. This sin separates us from God. See, He is perfect. We are not. God loves us. He hates the sin because of that separation. God did not create us intended as sinners. But we sinned. Maybe not after the same manner as Adam and Eve, but we sinned. And the Bible says the wages of sin is death. Physical separation from God forever in a fire-burning hell. I'll never forget when my brother burned a part of his arm and I could hear that flesh crackle. And it just bothered me. And I've always associated that with hell. (laughs) Do not wish that upon the worst person in this entire world. But that's what is coming for you and for me. In order to get to heaven, like I said, we have to be perfect without any sin, but we all fall short. Regardless of what religion teaches, which says things like this, get baptized, get confirmed, pray a prayer, live this kind of life, do good works, and God will recognize the good works. I had a man tell me one time he thought grace meant what God was going to do because he could not do it. He was going to do part and God was going to give him grace to meet the rest of the need. There's no amount of good works that can send us to heaven. None. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. So here we are. We cannot work our way to heaven. This hand represents the Lord Jesus Christ, and it's just for the sake of this illustration. But 2,000 years ago, he went through exactly what we read. This week is not about getting baskets and uh, uh, Easter bunny eggs and all that junk distraction. It is about what we just read. His false trial, his betrayal, his crucifixion, the agony that he went through, his flesh torn open. For God so loved the world. You looking? That he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have what kind of life? Everlasting life. All a person has to do is respond to God's offer. 
When you believe on the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, this sin, as it is so wonderfully described in the Bible, is removed as far as the east is from the west. Have you found that starting point? I can take you to the North Pole. I can take you to the South Pole. Ain't no East or West Pole. Doesn't exist. Our sin is gone, gone, gone. And the righteousness of God is put to our account. So now, when God looks at us, He doesn't see this. He sees the righteousness of His Son. And Colossians chapter 1 tells us, you're already there. Please do not get distracted this week. Please do not allow circumstances and situations to stop you from sharing that message with somebody. And the least that we can do is invite those who have yet to understand the gospel to come and fellowship with us. But if you're here today and you've yet to put your faith in Jesus, would you do so right now? The moment that you do, your past from death into life shall not come into condemnation. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes, please? No one looking around. If you're here this morning and this made sense to you, you realized you were putting your trust in something that you have done or what someone told you you needed to do in regards to a work to get saved. Would you change your mind and put your faith in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ for the full payment of your sin? If you did that today, the Bible says the righteousness of God has been put to your account and you're saved. And I would love to pray for you. Is there anyone at all by a raised hand and say, Pastor, would you pray for me? Today I did believe on Jesus Christ for the full payment of my sin. Anyone at all before we close? Raising your hand doesn't save you. It just lets me know that you understood for the first time and believed. Those of you who are watching on our live stream, this offer is available to you as well. And it is not time sensitive. You just need to believe before you pass away. With heads bowed and eyes closed, will you take a few moments to thank the Lord for this brutal week that he endured thousands of years ago? I want to encourage you to stay fresh in the word. Let these things marinate and be a motivation for you to reach souls. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jesus, for his body that was bruised and for his blood that was shed. We pray, Lord, for this coming week. As many of us will continue to read our scriptures, and maybe there are some here today that they, they're not doing that. I pray that they would. We thank you, Lord, for that sacrifice. And we rejoice in your resurrection that gives us hope.